the the vouchers is a great way. And you know, when we started with ten percent occupancy, we needed that. At that time, we really needed that, mm-hmm. and we had to have it, and that was the path forward. Yeah. And so, you know, time and place depends on where you're at, how you want to structure that, or, you know, and it. And I, I will say, like, it takes a special. It, look, this isn't easy. Navigating that that voucher system and those the getting your unit inspected, it's not easy. Right. It might sound easy, and everybody might tell you it's easy, but you know, you could you can have an inspector come out. And they find a cable on the outside of the property that's loose and you don't get paid. Like yeah. that's, I, again, you asked me what some of the problems are and how do we solve this affordable housing? It's making it easier. Yes. And they might pick on you. I mean, there were some days where we would have the CMHA group, Section 8, in, in, our, in, our, in our, we have had a, a van and we would drive them around and show them all the good things that we're doing. Like we're not ba- we're not bad people here guys. Like we want to help and but you can't pick on us, right? Like don't don't fail a unit because the cable on the outside is loose. Fail me if there's a problem on the inside. I can guarantee that we, our properties are, you know, we took really good care. And so when you're failing us for something on the outside that has no bearing on the inside living condition, come on. Like and and so you know, that that part is a challenge, and that's one of the problems that we have is that, you know, we get picked on because we're landlords and, and you know, right. oh, well, they can afford to not have the rent. Well, no, we can't. We have a loan to pay, too. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Guys, I am so excited today to welcome one of Dane's close friends, Nate Fisher, to the podcast today because he has over 25 years of experience in the real estate industry, and that spans multiple generations. His family, his parents were investors in affordable housing. So today, he is the founder of two companies, Peak 10 Group and Protective Thermal Solutions. Uh, Peak 10 Group was started in 2004 as a boutique commercial real estate investment firm, but Nate has done deals from all sizes big small close simple obviously and complex transactions as well i'm so 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 excited to welcome him and of course my guest co-host dane Connolly from aspen realty co but nate welcome to the show man and thank you thank you for coming on i i just i i just felt so blessed when dane introduced me to you and after hearing about your story and i just want to kick off the podcast first and foremost just by thanking you and your family for what you guys did and how you guys invested in affordable housing because without people like you man like i would have never had the home i grew up in with a state with a good roof over my head and just a stable environment to grow up in and that really allowed me to thrive so i'm so so grateful for people like you and your family that invest in affordable housing but welcome to the show man and just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate investing nate all right, well, great. Well, thanks a lot for uh, for having me, guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, so, uh, Nate Fisher, I'm here in Central Ohio. Um, I grew up in a multifamily family. So, what does that mean? Well, from a very young age, you know, I was in in the apartment world. My parents, uh, you know, in the '60s, were doing what a lot of us us today aspire to do: is own real estate. And so. They started here in, in central Ohio with a, a, a double near the Ohio State campus while they lived in a trailer park uh, nearby and went to school. So they were doing the Burr method in the 60s. And, you know, I didn't know what that was then. But, you know, that's kind of what I grew up around. And the family portfolio grew from that double, which is still, you know, still around today. And um, it's actually been sold down through a few different generations. My kids currently own that double right now. So we call that the trainings, training wheels property. Um, <laughs> And, and so, uh, so my kids just uh, bought that uh, from, from my wife and I. But, uh, you know, my early childhood was spent driving around to apartments and looking at them. And probably what a lot of us do today on the way to a soccer game, we're like, hold on, son. Hold on, daughter. We got to go look at this apartment complex. And so, you know, I was doing that in the, when I was a little kid. And then that progressed to, to doing work orders with my dad and riding around in the maintenance, maintenance truck and and then that progressed to being on the lawn crew. And as I got older, I worked on the roofing crew and, you know, we did landscaping. So, you know, we were true owner operators. Um, and that, you know, that port grew to about 900 units at that family portfolio here in, at the east, east, east of downtown Columbus, uh, all scattered sites anywhere from the double to uh, 200 unit complex. So, you know, I grew up around, on, around that really doing a little bit of everything. 
Um, and so always knew that I, that I wanted to, to be in real estate, just didn't know exactly where I fit. And, um, and I'll speed through this and we can kind of come back to it, but uh, got a degree from Ohio State through the business college in real estate. Probably the only guy that started knowing that he wanted to get a real estate degree. And I achieved that, got a, a real estate degree in the business college in real estate finance. And then ended up, you know, my passion, hence the Peak 10 group is, that's the Peak 10 in Breckenridge, Colorado. I love the mountains. I love to ski. And I said, I got to get my skiing and my real estate together. How am I going to do this? Ended up finding this company um, out of Canada who's doing ski resort-based village development. So I went to work for them shortly after college, and we were doing mixed use in the mid, in the late in the late nineties. And so I got my first taste of development there, and we were building you know for sale condo hotels with commercial on the ground floor, a plaza area, walking area, and then underground parking. And so I was I, that was the greatest job ever. I'm learning how to do development. I'm at a ski resort. My office is in a ski lodge. And, you know, that was just the greatest thing ever. Um, so worked there, met my wife in the ski industry. And um, then uh, after 9-11, there wasn't a lot of travel and leisure work and, and real estate kind of in a little bit of a recession there. I started up my own company. That's when Peak 10 sort of got its start. And then the Great Recession hit. And there was, was not a lot of work. So I did go back and start working for the family business and ended up running the family business for about 10 years through 2018 and peak 10 sort of set dormant during that time uh knowing that knowing that i would sort of get back to it at some point but uh um you know brought a lot of technology into the family business my father and mother were running it you know with a lot of paper and so i really integrated a lot of technology into our multifamily business which i think is very important um because you're you know you're seeing the wave of renters this massive apartment boom we've had the past 10 years you know i was getting the family ready for that um, okay, let's see. So, um, let's see if I can make the audio a little bit better. Uh, yeah, just a small, small crack a little there, but Nate, I, I'm, okay. I'm loving the story, man. And maybe Dane, how, how did you meet Nate? Like, I, I'm really interested in like how you guys kind of cross paths there. Yeah, we were introduced by a friend and colleague, a physician in the area that I, you know, I'm a physical therapist by trade, entrepreneur by nature, I always say. <clears throat> uh, he introduced us, uh, it was like a breakfast or a lunch meeting at a restaurant here in downtown Columbus where um, <laughs> this colleague, friend of ours, said, I think you two need to meet because you remind me of him. He reminds me of you. <laughs> he knew my brother, Jared, and I were were, you know, fairly new to multifamily real estate. And he said, hey, you know, it never hurts to have mentors and mm -hmm. people that you can bend their ear. And, and I just, and he, <laughs> Jeremy just kept saying, I think I need to introduce you to, this is weird because we have the same mentality, same energy, same whatever. And so, yeah, we were introduced, I don't know, it's probably two years, three years ago, two, three years ago. And, um, you know, since then, we've actually taken down a smaller deal, 30, what, six unit in Newark, mm -hmm. Ohio, east of, of Columbus here. Um, and Jared and I are trying not to screw that up too much uh, so that we can kind of prove ourselves to Nate that we know what we're doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and no, we're excited to, to, to work with Nate and, and just learn. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I want to hear you know, more and more stories from him. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. And I think that I just wanted to highlight like how even though this world is so big, this world can also be so small at the same time. And I just want the listeners to really pay attention to like, Dane just start talking about what they're doing in affordable housing. So don't, for the listeners out there, don't think like you're on this island all by yourself. If you start talking about what you're doing, who knows what you're going to stumble into. Right. Dane yeah. stumbled into Nate and Nate has over 25 years of experience. Like that, you guys <laughs> not think that's valuable? That's really, really valuable. You can't even place a price on it because someone has really went through like all those obstacles and went through all the problems and incurred all those mistakes so you can learn from them. This is why we're bringing a Nate onto the pocket so you guys can hear from his stories. So um, Nate, maybe you can share one or two stories of people you guys being able to help in affordable housing. I would love to kind of hear if you guys have any stories of people you've helped. 
Yeah. Is the audio any little bit? Oh, yeah, perfect. Bit? Okay, good, good. All right, great, great. You know, I, I mean, I was thinking about this and there's, there's so many different people along the way. Um, you know, I, I, I want to say there's just tons of characters that my family, they really helped and it, and it could be, um, you know, some of the neighborhoods we were operating in were very, I'll call them affordable or very, you know, C-class properties. And there was always characters along the way. And, and probably some of the ones that stick out in, in my head are, um, you know, there's always guys, maybe we, there was a lot of artisans in the neighborhoods. And one guy in particular was a photographer. Okay. And, 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 you know, and so, but he needed to work and he needed a place to live. And it seems like some of these buildings we always, we buy, right. There's always the basement, right? The basement's scary as heck. Right. And then, and, and there's always one, there's always one unit in the basement with one window. You're like, man, I could get an extra couple bucks out of this thing. What do I do with it? Well, well, some of the guys, you know, we would, and the, the photographer gentleman, he ended up coming to work for us, cleaning the hallways. And we ended up housing him in these units. And, you know, that unit was just fine for him. And the work was just fine for him. And it allowed him to, to do his craft of, of, of being a photographer. And we ended up actually purchasing his artwork from him. You know, my father, ended up becoming this gentleman's guardian over the years. He, he had been in and around our family for 25 years, living in that, in that lower level basement. And we would buy a lot of his artwork and display it around the office. And actually, like I said, my dad became his legal guardian because he just didn't have anybody. And so my dad cared for his affairs and make sure that his estate was in order and got him into a nursing home. And, and he just passed in the last year, which was unfortunate, but without, you know, my family or my father doing those kinds of things and working with people like that, you know, that was that, you know, there's, there's a couple different stories like that. And we actually just had a, 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 dis a gallery display, a celebration of life with all of his artwork at my, at my parents' house. So, you know, there's, there's, there's folks like that along the way. There's, That's awesome. there's just a, yeah. just a, a, another one that sort of sticks in there is uh, there was a gentleman who would do murals in the neighborhood and, um, you know, we had a lot of dumpsters, okay? And he would do murals around the neighborhood on walls. And we said, you know what? If you want a place to paint, paint our dumpsters. So we actually had murals on the sides of our dumpsters that the local gentleman painted. You know, that was our way of supporting him and we would pay him to do that. So, you know, there's just stories like that uh, all throughout uh, throughout the family. Um, you know, I can go into some other, that when we get into some of the help agencies and groups like that, but. There's just always characters like that around that would work for us in the day, maybe do their craft at night, or we would give them, a, you know, an affordable place to live and just help them. You know, sometimes we become their, their, their financial advisors just because, you know, they don't have the wherewithal, but you know, that's what you have to do in this business is to really work with people. And, and so there's just a number of, of folks like that around, around. And, and there's so many ways where you can make it kind of a win-win opportunity like that. We've done smaller things where, you know, uh, a lot of times trash pickup around the neighborhood and you reduce their rent or, or whatnot. So that's that's awesome. You uh, you you gave me a, a little uh, glimpse into a couple other stories. Uh, and I'll, I'm, I'm just going to give you an intro here and, and I'm just going to sit down with my mouth wide open. So crack sold here and 10 percent occupancy. So uh, tell us about those stories. <laughs> and uh, you know what? What types of uh, issues that brought in? And if you if you guys as a family learned anything there, or again, I always say scar tissue. Like how how bad was that? How tough was that? Um, and was it good crack? Or I don't I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't speak on that. You know, can I uh, let let me cue up the picture of the of the sign that you guys are referring to? Yeah, um, let's do it. So for for the listeners that are, might be listening to this in the car, you can definitely check this interview out on on YouTube and actually try to figure out like, hey, what is it that Nate is showing? We'll do our best to describe it uh, over audio, but you definitely want to check this interview out on YouTube so you can see some of these real life photos of of Nate's family's investment journey in the past. Okay, let me share this here. Okay, there you go. So 
down here, this is a, a 200 unit complex that we bought in 1989 from a, uh, from a doctor. And I can talk a little bit about that at, at some point too, but literally 10% occupied, 200 units. Um, this down in the right hand of the screen, there is a, uh, a sandwich sign. It says stop crack sold here, uh, $510, $25. So literally that was out in front of the complex when we bought it. Um, in the, in, in the top picture, there's a, a picture of my mother and father with the police at the entrance to the uh, apartment complex. Uh, they were thrilled that we purchased this. Believe me, they, they were ecstatic. The police that, that we, that we bought this, that saved them a lot of labor. There's a picture of the building with all the windows broken out. Um, and I think these were about 16, 16 unit. And then down in the left is the, the Doberman that policed the place, my dad's dog. So, uh, like I told you earlier, that building looks like almost every building Jared and I are currently looking at. <laughs> yeah. So it, it I'll, I'll, okay. Back now. How did you, so, uh, while you were fixing that up, how did you get that finance? Did you guys have to go in and just pay straight cash or did the city work with you because of what? occupancy like that and the physical condition like that i don't nowadays you know it would be nearly impossible i i would think from my connections at least to get that financed well i, I think that you know this is that you have to be really really creative here right like you know developing the relationships with the bank um so you know if, if a property's in trouble the bank doesn't want it back so this was owned by a doctor who thought he was going to be a real estate guy, but clearly could not operate a property. And we can talk about the advantages of buying things from doctors and lawyers. No offense, guys. But a lot of times they think they can do it all and, and, and we can capitalize on that when they can't. And so, you know, we were able to actually work with the bank and get the seller to give us about $600,000 of rehab money to, to take his problem off his hands. And so... You know, it's really a partnership with, you know, leveraging your relationship with the bank and your track record and the seller, you know, he doesn't want to lose his property. He doesn't want to, you know, have a bankruptcy on uh, and get get foreclosed on. So we were able to to be super creative and get the bank to believe in us and allow us to, and, and to work with us on the loan. And so we actually got money back to do this, to do some of the rehab. So. You know, you can do that in today's terms. It's a rehab loan from the bank, but or seller financing. So you just have to be really, really flexible uh, and be creative. And, you know, everybody was happy to see us get control of this property because we we're turnaround artists, man. We would stabilize areas of neighborhoods. And so we had a track record that allowed us to step in here and stabilize the neighborhood. I mean, this is this is six acres. This is a big property. It was cancer to the neighborhood. And so, you know, aligning and sharing your vision of what you're going to do with the police, you know, there's another photo in here where my mom and dad get an award from the, from the police because they saved, I forget, there was, you know, hundreds of police runs to this complex. Yeah. And so they were commended for the reduction in the amount of crime just by us coming in building by building, you know, getting it back on track, fixing those windows. And this is where you know, Kent, you had alluded to, um, you know, our partnership with with groups. And so this is really where that a 30 year relationship with a local uh, health agency started was this was really the the you know, the beginning of that. And that relationship continued for, for 30 years. So you know, if you want me to go go into that, I can. But that it was it was a, a true, you know, private partner relationship here. Man, it was a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, I love the creativity. Kent and Jared and I are all about creative deal flow, especially in today's market where, in my opinion, prices are still 25 to 35% uh, above uh, where they should be overinflated. But there was a little nugget there, and this is something that, that we do on a lot of our properties too, is we'll contact the police department in public records, public domain, and, and get uh at least one year, but usually two to three years of records of any police activity at that property while we're in our due diligence phase. Sometimes we try to do it before that even. Uh, so that gives you an idea of just how bad it is. If it's bad and you still like the property, then that's fine. But, but like you, Nate, you said, Nate, <clears throat> that maybe gives you uh, some brown nosing ability, so to speak, to go to the PD and say, 
we're going to take this over. This is our vision. We're going to help you guys out. You know, in the meantime, work with us, however it may be. But we're now here. We're going to get the bad guys and bad girls out. We're going to, this, this is our plan. You know, let's work together. And just, and, and there may be some rough, you know, a couple of weeks while you're transitioning people out. And we actually had um, uh, on our first property, we did that. And one of the, one of the police officers actually said, well, I can do off duty work too. So if you're evicting some of these really bad people and you need help, here's my number, call me anytime. We appreciate what you're doing. And it was, that's a nice little, a nice little way to get tied into the community the the city um and uh maybe not get beat up while you're evicting somebody too i guess yeah and i'll just add one thing what you just said you just said the city and so code enforcement all the local officials they don't they, they don't want to deal with this thing if you know a lot of times these apart these communities get so run down the only option is to bulldoze it and that, that's not what that doesn't help the affordable housing prop uh right. you know, problem right now at all right that makes it worse so if you can get the city on your side and code enforcement isn't breathing down your neck, they don't want to, they don't, they, they're happy to see you as long as you convey that to them, that yeah. you're going to make a difference. They'll be a little bit lenient on you. Sure. I have another question. Uh, based on the, the long history that you and your family have had in, in multifamily real estate, uh, affordable housing, what is, what has been the biggest, and I know it's a loaded question, but has there been one biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome or the biggest issue, biggest challenge or challenges, one or two things that, especially early on. So I'm thinking selfishly for myself and Jared, like we're in it. You and I were joking the other day, like, man, I think Jared and I have paid each other like $2,000 in three years. We're in it. We're (laughs) investing. We're grinding. And you hit that. You made me feel so good the other night. You said, Hey brother, like, this is hard. People don't realize how damn hard this is. Coming from healthcare, that's hard. This is this is hard also. But I, I don't think people understand how difficult it is. What Jared and I are swimming in right now. Uh, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel to be where you are and with your successes. But what were maybe one or two of the biggest issues that you guys faced? And, and I'll just kind of shut up and listen. I'm I'm excited to hear this. Wow. I, th- I think there's, there, you're right. That is a loaded question. Um, I don't know that there's, you know, it, it is a steep learning curve and you have to ask yourself, you know, am I cut out for this? Uh, everybody thinks they want to be a landlord, but not everybody's cut out for that. And, and so, you know, that's the first thing. Do I want to do this? Am I willing to put in the hard work? Cause it's not, it's not easy. And there's a learning curve and it's a steep one. And, and I think, you know, Dane, you're, you're, you're grinding through it right now and, and it's tough and there's not, you know, if there, you know, 15 years ago, there wasn't these kinds of forums where we're talking today. There wasn't readily available information. There wasn't a playbook. At least now, you know, we can pick up the phone and call each other. We, we you know, it, it just, in my dad's days, the rent man, man, it was like Foghorn Leghorn. Everybody beat each other up all day long. They didn't collaborate or ha- have as many discussions like you and I are having today. So that learning curve is steep. And, and thank goodness today we can collaborate and talk and we can share war stories. We're not trying to fight each other all day long because it was every man for himself, you know, for a long time. And you, and, and so that learning curve is steep and that learning curve can be, Hey, if I'm going to take vouchers um, or I want to work with the government and, and use these vouchers, it's tough, man. It, they don't make that easy. And, right. and it's a lot of learning. And, and so some of the bureaucracy, and I see that as an impediment to solving the affordable housing is, it needs to be easier for us to be housing providers and be in partnership with the housing, you know, whoever's administrating the, uh, the vouchers. That's probably the biggest hurdle is just that, you know, we're, we're just like everybody else else here, man. We're grinding. We pull it, put on our pants every morning, but it's not easy. It is a long road and they're, you know, it's managing your, managing your cat, your liquidity to get the next loan and, don't outlay too much capital on this one project because you can get upside down. And then you're at the same time, you're trying to time market conditions. You know, what type of debt do I put on? What can I do here? What does the property need? Like, you know, I thrive on that strategy. I love that, but it's not for everybody. And you're right. It is a long, long grind, but, but I'll call it a hockey stick. You know, you, you stick after it and you, and you keep learning 
and eventually you get it and it, it goes up and you know i i'm i'm on that hockey stick up right now and but it it, it was a long long time yeah yeah no that's that's so well said um yeah, that's that's so well said. Is there one nugget that you would give to people just getting started right now? No, knowing that that it's a grind, that it's maybe a marathon. Uh, and I was just telling Jared the other day, I said, on paper, my net worth has never looked sexier than it does right now. But I've never been more broke, baby. Like in terms of cash flow, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> can, can we go out to dinner tonight? Yeah, we can squeeze that out. But is there one little nugget that you would, you know, give somebody, especially if they're at the lowest of lows? Because I, Jared and I were there a couple of years ago where we literally said what you just said. I don't know. Are, do you think we should be doing this? And this is from a doctor and a healthcare professional with two master's degrees and an and entrepreneur. Like, and we were we were shook. There, there was one point, and Kent and I talked about this weeks ago. There was one point where we just thought, "What? Well, all right, maybe we just get rid of this and go into something else." Um, so, yeah, I, I I think don't don't be afraid. You know, you don't know what you don't know, and don't be afraid to ask. Right? Like, don't try to do it all yourself. You don't have to be a, a master of everything. Find a mentor. Reach out. Say, I want to learn. I mean, there's a lot of guys like me who want to 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 teach what we do and to share our stories and help and, and help guide. And and so I think it's don't be afraid to align yourself with somebody who knows more than you. And, and maybe that that could be a coach or that could be a mentor or, you know, there's 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 I just invested in a self storage deal. I thought maybe I'd do my own self storage. Yay, Nate, I learned it. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, that's not the easy, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to, so I was able to invest as a passive investor. I don't have to manage it, but I get a, I get a seat in the passenger seat to learn self-storage and I'm making money at the same time. So, so I'm learning along. And, and again, I'm always learning something new. Yeah. Um, and so don't be afraid to, to seek out who knows more than you because you don't need to know it all. Right. Yeah. That's I, if I'm ever the smartest person in a room, which trust me, people, that rarely happens. Uh, but if I am, then I'm nervous and I'm frustrated. And I, I, I always need to be challenged kind of like you. And the one thing I, that I, it finally dawned on me this week um, is that I don't always have to be the GP. I, I don't have to be the guy finding the deal and putting our stamp on it. And Hey, look, Aspen Realty Group. Yeah. It's okay to run with good dudes like yourself or, you know, I, I got connected with um, a developer in, um Tennessee and Texas great guy um was highly recommended by multi people multiple people where yeah I can invest in his deals and still make money and and that's something like you know maybe it's ego with me wanting to to solve all the world's problems but it's okay to run with other people network and meet good people and as yeah. I always say almost on every podcast is you know life's too short to, to live and work with buttheads. Like I want to, I want to sprint and I want to affect a lot of people's lives, but, but with good people because life's too short for the, the, the other. And let, let me emphasize this point for folks, right? Um, I, I, I told Dane and Jared this myself. I was like, when Dane and Jared just came onto the podcast, I literally texted Jared or Dane. Uh, I was like, Hey dude, I feel like my family's like, my life dreams are coming true because I met people like you guys. And because people in real estate are generally so open, I have never met anyone like, especially in affordable housing that have true success that have, you know, done everything right and have tr enjoyed tremendous success, not be willing to kind of pay it forward because there's, we just have a, an abundance mindset where we're still like, Hey, well, let's just help as many people as we can. And maybe it'll all come back, but there's no expectation of that return. Like you're just giving and you're giving it because you're trying to pay it forward. You get to meet more and more amazing people like Dane, like Jared, like Nate. So for the people out there that are trying to figure out like, Hey, how do I get started? Nate just told you he has over 25 years of experience, but he just invests as a limited partner, as a passive investor, in another deal for the people that are out there right now, you don't need to quit your job right away. Why don't you just do become the best at your job so that one, you improve your reputation at your workplace so that people will actually want to invest with you in the future, right? Because your reputation carries throughout your life. Doesn't matter if you're in a W2 job right now, it continues going forward with you. 
But then you get to invest as a passive investor in a deal with Nate or Dane. People have you know cut their teeth through all these issues that they face, and you get to be in a passenger seat and learn from them. Nate has 25 years experience, and he's willing to do that. So don't think you're too good and let the ego get the best of yourself. Dane, like, what kind of things did you guys do in your investments to turn around those type of properties and those assets? Like, what was your impact on your communities that you guys were investing in? Yeah, the cool thing, I keep going back to our first deal. That, that to me, um, it didn't have crack sold here uh, on the front do door. <laughs> but but like I've said before, there was feces floating in the basement. There was black mold all over everything. Well, after we got the property stabilized, you know, we we started on the, the inside, making sure they were structurally sound. We we even went as far as <clears throat> obviously new roofs. Um, we relined the sewers um, and then on the interiors, we updated them, got rid of the mold um, and made them nice and clean and dry and safe. And then on the exteriors, our second phase was... <clears throat> Because it's Ohio and it snows here sometimes, Ken, California jerk. Uh, that you know, the, the the second phase was in springtime. We painted the exteriors and then repaved the um, the the driveway. And it got to the point where when you turned off of the main street onto our secondary street, those properties, those ten townhomes, popped. They they really popped. And then before you knew it, the the uh, apartment complex caddy corner was reaching out to me. Hey, how did you guys do this? What do you, do you want to be involved here? That didn't work out. But then they started bringing that really rundown apartment complex up to speed. Um, and the one, the cool thing that I always say, you know, it helped the community. Yeah, but the the twenty families that were living in these ten townhomes that Jared and I had bought. Uh, that first Christmas sent us, I, I mean, I still have them here somewhere in my office. They sent us Christmas cards saying thank you uh, for taking care of us. And, and the one was, uh, it was a Somali family, and she did not speak much English, but she somehow figured out how to write in English this beautiful uh, card. And it, it was the, the property that had the feces in the basement. Her kids were always sick. Go figure, black mold, feces floating around. Um, and she basically said, you know, my kids are never sick anymore. And it's be, oh. you know, because of you. Thank you wow. so much. And, and that was the lady who then invited her sister and then her mom. And so they ended up taking over, I think, two or three of the of the townhomes. So that that's just kind of my little neat part. Cool, cool. Yeah. I switched to a new speaker. Let me know if that's any better. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yeah. No crackle. No crackle. Okay. You're great. Great, great, great. I switched to the backup. So let me I'll, – I'll, I'll parlay on what Dane just said. You know, coming in with landscaping and making the curb appeal, it just brings everybody up in the neighborhood. And everyone's looking at how great your property looks, and then they want to – invest in their property and the other guy is you know he starts landscaping his or her across the way and it just sort of builds up and and people feel better about where they live not coming home to a shithole and so that's the first thing we do is come in and make sure that the property looks good the parking lot looks good the landscaping is impeccable and we probably spend too much money on the landscaping but that was really um you know that's really one of the first first things we we would do to a property and that just sort of lifts lifts the neighborhood up um and you know that that starts the stabilization and the reinvestment in the neighborhood and after a little while you know you've you've stabilized a whole block and a whole couple blocks yeah. and then the single family homeowners start going well wow this is a nice area i want to buy here and so then they start buying they start buying homes and it just really lifts everybody up in the neighborhood. Um, and that's that pride of that pride of ownership that, um, that you get, whether you're a multifamily owner, uh, affordable housing owner, or, or a single family home owner or a renter, right? Like you feel good about where you live. And a lot of times, you know, we, we just tried to be, if you think about a person's life, their rent is their biggest payment. And if you can be, if you can give them a safe, affordable place to live, you've just taken a lot of worry out of their life and their life becomes more stable. Yeah. So 
trying to be the most stable force in their life is what we try to do as affordable housing landlords. And they're, uh, you know, they might have a crazy boyfriend or a crazy whatever going on or, you know, but if you, if they have a safe place to be, then, then, um, you know, that, that's what we try to try to be. Ken, what was the, the rest of the question? I kind of got sidetracked there. No, I, that's perfectly, it's perfectly okay. I love hearing these stories because I want to hear about like what other mistakes you guys made. You talked oh, about, yeah. you, you talked about, you know, overdoing the landscaping, but I would almost disagree. That was not a mistake because I think people sometimes when they get into investing, especially if you are truly trying to have the impact that you have, Nate, you and your family could have just said, you know what, this is a rundown neighborhood. We're just going to do the bare minimum. We're just, we're just going to go with what it is, a status quo. We bought the property just trying to make a little bit of money. You guys didn't do that. You guys set the whole standard to a whole nother level. And I think sometimes people need to challenge themselves like, hey, am I just trying to be a follower here or am I trying to be a leader? Because it does take a little – you got to be a little crazy to take on these risks sometimes. <laughs> you you got to yeah. be a little crazy to go take on this amount of risk and invest all this stuff. And I think people stop short of recognizing, like, hey, I am now becoming a leader so I need to start setting the standard a lot higher. And that's going to what's going to really truly create a new level of standard that's going to permeate throughout the neighborhood in these scenarios. But yeah, like I, I'm sure it took so much effort to do this, but I'm interested in hearing like just what other mistakes you guys made during this process. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as you scale up your, your business and as you, you know, as you go from a double to a, a four unit to a 12 to a 40 to whatever, right, you've got to add more staff. And, and where I think we made some mistakes along the way is when I got back into the family business, you know, my dad, my, I had left for a while and, and my, my mother and father had, had done really well. Okay, they'd made a lot of money. And they sort of kept, they sort of lost their I wouldn't say lost their focus. They just sort of took their eye off the ball a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when you're in this space, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. And that means, it, it, you know, your staff. And, and really what I found is that we, um, and as you get multiple properties um, and your staff, there had, we were doing at one point, when I got back in the business, we were doing 15 evictions a month. That's crazy talk. Wow. And when I really analyzed, we had lost the focus in the business about doing your due diligence on each and every individual resident. And so, you know, you've got to do the proper screening. Spend your time on screening the people and making sure they're, they're the right people. Because if you're not putting in the right people, and then sometimes you really have to watch your staff because while you might be the owner, it's very easy for your team to become tenant advocates. And they want to, look, we all want to help people, right? But you, you're, some of these stories tug on your heartstrings and you want to help them out. And so, so, so you give a little bit of a break somewhere. And then, you know, we, we, when it, I remember looking at the portfolio and we had this 12 unit building and it was the most affordable property in the whole bill in the whole portfolio. And what had happened is the staff were getting lazy and they weren't doing the qualifications correctly. And they were wanting to help that whole 12 unit building was just a place to park the people that they wanted to help. And then they weren't paying rent and now we're evicting them. And it just was this vicious cycle that if you're not doing your homework on the residents you're putting in, then you're having to evict them. So I really, that was a big mistake is we let that get out of hand. We maybe tried to help too much and we, we, we didn't stick to our strategy of qualifying people the right way. And so that turned into another job. Okay, well, then we had to have a person who handled evictions, and then we had to have a person who helped with setouts, and then and and it just became this cycle that wasn't good for anybody. Nobody wants to. Uh, we don't want to evict people, so why are we having this repetitive fifteen evictions every month? That's not good. So that was a big, big mistake we made, and so I really cleaned that up, and we got it down to one eviction. For 900 units when I stopped running the family's portfolio and moved into my new company. So that's the, you know, if you just look at your whole process from the start to finish, what, what's happening at the end? Let me go back to the beginning and see and stick to your guns and stick to your qualifications. And that was a big mistake we made. Sure. Sure. And that's, that's, that's amazing. One eviction for 900. That's a, that is outstanding. Um, 
during that time, was any of that transition, were you using uh, Section 8, which in Columbus we call it CMHA, were you utilizing Section 8 a lot? And if so, like, how has partnering with, you know, CMHA, uh, the VA, other public uh, entities helped you or, or conversely hurt you? Um, and what are your experiences there? So, so yes, we, we, we used a lot of vouchers in, in the family's portfolio and, and in my, in my own portfolio today, we, we, we do as well, not to the level, um, you know, just depending on what, what class you're operating in, clearly there's more, you know, the, the family's portfolio is C class and, and D class. There's, there's always going to be more vouchers. There's going to be more agencies that you're working with. So, you know, I think at, at, at uh, we probably had 25% of the portfolio were voucher based okay. um, when I, when I took that over. And I think that, that as we get down in here a little bit more, we'll, some of the, the partnership, when I talked about the, the crack 5, 10, 15 sold here building, you know, we were receiving vouchers, but it was also a partnership with a, a help agency that was dealing with women that had addiction issues and that might have had children. And so, you know, there's there's your straight voucher, right, that comes and that's just housing. And then there's project based Section 8. I've managed a project based Section 8 property as well. We, we had, I don't know, 95 units in that 102 that were project based but you know there's different types of, of vouchers and I, I wanted to I do want to get into the the amethyst which is a local group the 30-year relationship we had and yeah. and you know, you know that is um, women that had addiction issues and you know they needed housing and so you have a help agency that's that has a treatment component to it but they also need the housing component well the local housing authority has a real, and, and over time this, this has gotten worse, right? Like they really only wanna give the housing vouchers to people that are homeless, right? But you have this group of people that are really, really in need, that need housing, that are one step away from homeless. And, and so there's this challenge of the funding of, the, of the, the group Amethyst. How would they get their funding with their people aren't homeless? Like it's a really a, a battle there and, and there's some other lessons learned about financing and how much of your portfolio to, to you know, what's a safe amount uh, to have to to have committed to one particular agency, if you will, or one help help group or however you want to call it. So, do you, do you have ratios like that? I've never heard of that before. That's that's interesting. Are you aware of anything that says you should have X amount of open market versus X amount of Section Eight versus other voucher holders or well, the, so so the 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 challenge isn't that you have Section Eight or CMHA vouchers in your in your units. When you have a master lease with a with with one group, the lenders are going to get squirrely anytime you get over thirty percent to one single tenant. And so there is some some challenges there. If you want to be the type, if you want to have a relationship where a hundred percent of your building is master leased to a, a group or maybe whatever their mission is, a mission-based group, let's call it that, the lender is going to then, you know, ha have some, some heartburn over that. And on this particular, pro the property we talked about, at one point we had 50% was leased to one group. And when I went to do the refinance on that, the lender actually, we had to set up an appointment with the CFO of the help agency so they could sort of be underwritten as to the validity of their their uh, nonprofit. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, there are some bumpers in there and in 06 when when the or 07 when it, the, the great recession, there was there was a lot of uh, market rate apartment communities that had a high concentration of corporate housing units. And immediately when the, you know, the corporate housing cut <clears throat> and and so then the then the loan and the bank gets squirrely. Well, that can they can have that same feeling and so you might see restrictions on how many, how many units in a particular community can you master lease. Yeah. So it, it's something to, to communicate clearly with your lender about what you're doing or what your intentions are and make sure they're on board. And you might need to, to bring that group in and, and they might need to present their finances to your own lender. So it's just something to, to consider and keep in mind. That's all. That's awesome. Awesome. Awesome feedback there. I, I, had not heard that 30% ratio, but 
that makes complete sense, you know, obviously. Um, and I don't know if I know you and I have bounced around to a couple hotel transformations that, that we decided not to do. But I, I think it was before I met you, my brother and I had like literally we were an hour away from we had signed the agreement. The seller decided not to execute it, but it was going to be a hotel transformation. It would have been 99 units um, that would have been that we would have turned over in entirety to CMHJ Section 8. Um, the lender at that point, because it was during COVID, was like, oh, my God, guaranteed rents. Yes, let's do that. And there's the, the massive need for affordable housing. But it didn't happen like that. It was me sitting down with them on three different occasions and getting Section 8 involved. Um, they actually they sat in on a couple of the phone calls or Zoom calls, but then they actually wrote uh, what they called a participation letter saying, we want all 99 units. We're going to pay. We're going to guarantee this clip. And by the way, we have 60,000 vouchers that need apartments. So it's the lender heard that and he goes, well, this is a no brainer. <laughs> I looked at him like, for you and me both. Yes, you know. <laughs> um, so that that's that's just a little caveat. Just maybe reverse engineering it in a in a time where there was that need. But yeah, that's that's really that's really really good feedback. I love that. Well, again, you know it. It's you know we we want to do good and we all want to help. And so you know if I think you just have to be cautious a little bit if you're if you have a community that you want to do 100% to one nonprofit you just have to vet that nonprofit and make sure they have the finances and and know that that it's always depending on how they're structured you got to do your due diligence on that group as well right. and so you just you just need to be eyes wide open and know what you're getting into if if that's the route you want to go yeah, to your to your point the 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 vouchers is a great way and you know, when we started with 10% occupancy, we needed that. Yeah. At that time, we really needed that mm -hmm. and we had to have it. And that was the path forward. Yeah. And so, you know, time and place depends on where you're at, how you want to structure that or, you know, and it, and I, I will say like, it takes a special, it, look, this isn't easy. Navigating that, that voucher system and those, the getting your unit inspected, it's not easy. Right. It might sound easy and everybody might tell you it's easy. But, you know, you can, you can have an inspector come out and they find a cable on the outside of the property that's loose and you don't get paid. Like yeah. that's, I, again, you asked me what some of the problems are and how do we solve this affordable housing? It's making it easier. Yes. And they might pick on you. I mean, there were some days where we would have the CMHA group, Section 8, in, in, our, in, our, in our, we have had a, a van. And we would drive them around and show them all the good things that we're doing. Like we're not we're not bad people here, guys. Like we want to help, and but you can't pick on us, right? Like don't don't fail a unit because the cable on the outside is loose. Fail me if there's a problem on the inside. I can guarantee that we, our properties are. You know, we took really good care. And so when you're failing us for something on the outside that has no bearing on the inside living condition, come on. Like, and and so. You know, that that part is a challenge. And that's one of the problems that we have is that, you know, we get picked on because we're landlords and, and you know, right. oh, well, they can afford to not have the rent. Well, no, we can't. We have a loan to pay, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, we had we had uh, in our first 20 units, we had CMHA come out the first time and they failed us. The major thing was one of the outlets was upside down. And I'm like, come on. Dane. It, 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 hey, just, hey, Dane. Don't sh that's a pro tip. Don't sh you're so you, you <laughs> don't share all the pro tips here. You, <laughs> left, that, you left that loose on, on purpose so they can find that. Oh, I'll fix that right here. That'll be our subscription <laughs> service. Twenty dollars a month for pro tip. But no, no, I, I get it. But, but I don't know. Did you find that after a while of, of proving that you're not a slumlord? Because I, I get it from their side too. Like the crap that they have to deal with especially the previous landlord that owned our first 20 units, all they knew, all that inspector knew was this property and I'm going to, I'm coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. And once we, he, he left before I got on site, my property manager was there trying to help. So once he came back a second time, I made sure I was there. And then I just grabbed him and took him around to all the other the interiors. We were, we started on the inside and then out. Um, and showed him what we were doing. And he was like, oh. And then I showed him our vision. It wasn't a vision board, but it was it was like a pro forma, like a, a 
this is what we're doing. We need you to work with us so that now this is, you know, it was two weeks, three weeks before they could come back out to reinspect. I'm like, we're going to take care of them. So we had our maintenance guy, anytime they came out, we had our maintenance guy stop whatever the heck he was doing and literally just follow them through the inspection. And, and they knew that we wanted to do right. We just want to fix it. We want them to check their boxes and we want those damn boxes checked so we can get the rent in. So let's work together and follow around. Did, did you notice that after a while that they knew that, okay, this is, this is one of uh, the Fisher properties. We know it's going to be taken care of and, did they work with you at all and soften on that at all or no? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of like every year they go to a conference in October and they come back and it's really bad for a while. And then we, we rebuild the relationship. They write us up for a bunch of stuff and then we rebuild the relationship. And they're like, oh, yeah, these guys are actually good people. They really do mean well. They do what they say and they follow through. You know, don't feed them a bunch of BS. They're people, too. And, you know, I I. Yeah, I mean, it's that relationship building with them. And, you know, it might be bumpy when the, when the inspector when the inspector uh, changes or somebody moves on. And, and so it does take a little while. And, and, I, and I always think that this is very applicable to the guys in code enforcement, right? It's the same type of relationship building. And, you know, if we're getting flack, and, and that, again, that's that relationship. If we were getting flack from the local inspector, we always tried to know who was up and, hey, you know, we don't want to go above your head, but sometimes you need to go and say, hey, and we're getting a lot of flack here on the street. We really mean well. Can you, can you, can you talk to your inspector? Because you, you know us. We've been working together for 10 years. Um, again, that relationship building, don't be afraid to talk to the people, and they're humans too. But, you know, same thing code enforcement. You're like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this. I just can't get it done maybe by Friday, but I'm going to get it done by next Tuesday. Um, you know, I've got some other things or, you know, there's also when you, when there's these inspections happen, you know, what you said, Dane, the pro forma, you're like, Hey, look, I know there's a crack in that sidewalk, but look at these roofs that I've just put on, yeah. right? <laughs> I just put $50,000 of roofs on. Yeah. Can we, I'll get to the crack in the sidewalk, you know, in the, in the spring. Yeah. So yeah. it's prioritizing and sharing maybe what you've done on your property that you're doing the big, important things right. that need to be done. And don't not do them. <laughs> and I think I would just want to emphasize like what you guys have been talking about is relationships and communication. Yeah. And this is permeated throughout the entire conversation here for our listeners, where even in the beginning, when we talked about communicating with your lenders, like, hey, we got a participation letter from the Section 8. Like this stuff will be secure because government's going to pay their rent every month. But you also have to communicate with your lenders, meaning, hey, 30% of our rents or 50% of our rents might actually come from this one master lease with this organization. And that's okay because now you can talk to a lender like, hey, what are you looking for so that you can be comfortable with us having this relationship? And now you can take that same criteria and be efficient with your time and bring those same questions back to those, those agencies and say like, hey, this is what the lender is going to ask for anyways. So let's just have this conversation now. And you can save so much more time by vetting them in advance. And then when you go to closing or talk to the lender, you already have all these documents and all the questions or the issues or the concerns already answered. And now you go into educating the relationship with the housing authorities that you guys are, you guys are mentioning or building those relationships with inspectors. Like sometimes people just need to ask an extra question. Like don't just stop short at the yeah. entry level folks where you're like, Hey, all right, cracking the sidewalk. Like, yeah, fail me. Like you can ask one extra question and, show your case like how dane brought the inspection and show like hey this is what we're working on and nate gets to demonstrate the track history of what they're going to do for the communities like all of these things are just supporting details to show that you are who you say you are it's not just a relationship you guys all delivered on exactly yeah. what you told them well and, and that's that's the thing two things yeah you have to deliver and not that any of your listeners, our listeners wouldn't have their heart in affordable housing, because if it's not, then why the hell are they listening to this podcast? But if your heart is not in truly in doing right and helping your tenants and providing dignity and clean, safe, affordable housing, don't talk to these. Don't talk to Section 8. They're going to smell through your BS a mile away. <laughs> they are not going to work with you. They are the best poker player. I used to play competitive Texas Hold'em. Everybody at Section 8 that I met was looking me in the eyes, and they can they can smell BS a mile away. So if your heart's not in it, 
man, you, you, you need to, to move on for sure. <laughs> Well, Dana, you, know, you hit what, on a few items. I, I definitely want to ask you, like, what, what, what else? Why do you think affordable housing is so hard to solve for? You mentioned a few items already, but why do you think the supply of affordable housing is so hard to solve for? Because if anything has changed, right? Like when I was living in affordable housing, it was a seven-year waitlist. Here in San Diego, where I live, it's like twelve to fifteen years now. Why is it so hard? And do you think like there are like one or two priorities that you recommend for like this generation to kind of focus on so that maybe we'll just give and prepare the next generation with more tools and knowledge so that they can continue solving this problem? Yeah, I, I think at the, the great questions and at the highest level, it's a supply and demand issue. Um, we don't have enough supply and there's a number of, of reasons why that is and um, so if we can solve the supply, I think the National Apartment Association came out with a study last year. We're in the U.S. We're 4.5 million units under. I mean, wow. we have to build more. It's crazy. That's our that's our problem. Um, really, at the at the top level, it's supply. And so, how do we get more supply? Well, we have to make it easier. And you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to do that. And so. You know, for a long time, it was acceptance of multifamily. We were just shitty, you know, shitty landlords, right? And apartments suck. Well, you know, that's not the case. And people in communities, and still there's a lot of communities that don't want apartments and they think we're just slumlords. And so I, I feel like in the past 15 years, we've, we've, we have, and some people have woken up, if you will, to the fact that apartments can be great neighbors. And so a lot of communities didn't want apartments for a long time, and so they would block them. And there's still many today that that just don't want the density. And so if we, in some of these neighborhoods, I, I'll give you a quick example. In this neighborhood that that where this property was, I had a, a piece of dirt, and I wanted to build six units in 2004. And I remember being on site, and the neighbors were just outraged at me that I wanted to build apartments. I'm <sighs> like, guys. We've been here for 25 years and we're going to be here for another 25, maybe more. You guys are here because of us stabilizing the neighborhood. And so they were literally yelling at me on the site because they didn't want me to build apartments. And I'm like, now that, that it's changed in the 18 years since that conversation. Now people are much more open. I think they're waking up to, to that. We need this density. And, you know, also, where you where you see and, and, and if we want we can get into why why apart why apartment buildings are are four over one mm -hmm. right like they're super dense because that's what the economics are, but you're seeing where these buildings are popping up that are very dense. Well, that's actually the cheapest way to get more affordable housing is to build on a site that already has utilities too. It's cheaper for it's cheaper for the city, um, and so as you see neighborhoods change and you see more density, you know, the bus lines are there, the water's there, the electric's there, it's already there. And so, you know, I feel like we're, we're getting better as a, as a, as a nation, if you will, of accepting apartments and accepting the density, but really it's a, it's a supply and demand issue. So how do we make it easier to build apartments? You know, I, I think you've got to have tax incentives and as much as people go, Oh my God, greedy developers. Well, you know, there are some areas of town that you couldn't, you'd have to pay me to go there because it's bad. And even the tax incentives won't get me to go there. I don't know how to solve that problem, but you need those incentives to get developers. The deals just don't pencil. So how do we work together more to get more units? So whether it's the approval process, you know, in some cities here in central Ohio, it's very difficult to get an apartment community approved in the city proper. But you go to the outside of the, of the outside to a a, 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 an, a community outside of the city, and they will mobilize in some cases really quickly to solve your problems, to find out the challenges you have to get your building built there. We need more of that. We need a faster path to build more. Um, so, so that's really that that's really it. I mean, those are. Well, I've heard stories of developers. They'll buy the dirt and they have to sit on it for two years um just because of zoning and 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 whatnot and i know and i know i know we're running over here and i know you're busy nate but on that note and I'm, I'm stepping on kent's time a little bit too but is it possible to develop you've had a little taste of development obviously 
is it possible to develop affordable housing apartments and make it a win for everybody? Meaning the developer's making his money or her money, management, you know, obviously tenants. Is it possible to do that affordably for tenants? Developers can get rewarded for their risk and and whatnot. Is is that a do you see that as a reality or or not? I, it seems like every apartment complex that I see going up is a beautiful A-class apartment complex, and we need that too. But I don't see, you know, every uh, affordable housing property looks like your the crack house. It's the ugly brick building, <laughs> and and I'm guilty of this too. As soon as I see, it, I'm like, oh, that's something I could buy. But is it possible to to do that effectively and efficiently uh, from a gr- ground up standpoint? You know, I, I think, look, the plumbing inside the, let me just say, the plumbing inside the walls, whether it's an A-class property or a C-class property or workforce housing, whatever you want to call it, it's the same plumbing. Sure. So then you start to look through and you say, what else can we make cheaper? Well, you know, I think a great rabbit hole to go down is is manufactured modular construction in apartments. Like, yep. that's the next wave. Mm-hmm. That gets you to market quicker. It's less interest and less carry costs. Yep. So if you can... Get the actual ground up construction done faster. I think that maybe it's uh, you know cities being more accepting of that of that type of construction. That is a faster way, and so it has to be a combination. I mean, to me, I approach everything. We have to win, and all, all everyone has to win in this equation. Right. Whether it's the right. renter, the developer, the seller, we all have to win. So it's finding that balance, and you know. You, you, the, I, I do think the incentives to get developers to come in and whether that's a tax abatement or it's low cost, uh, low cost loans or low interest rate loans or more affordable, maybe more affordable terms. You know, Dane, I think you and I talked about in Columbus, we have this really, you, Franklin County has an affordable housing trust and, and folks listen to this because look around in, in where you live. There's probably agencies there or groups that are funded by local banks because they want to do this. They'll provide a pool of money to, uh, we call it the Affordable Housing Trust, that can then provide uh, favorable lending terms to either developers or, um, or rehab projects. You know, it needs to be substantial rehab. Um, and I think the Opportunity Zone is a great opportunity. I'm currently exploring that right now. That's another oh, path forward to... To, to yeah. where, you know, if you can't get it to pencil traditional with the current, you know, market rates, if your investors, your LPs are trying to defer taxes by putting their money in an opportunity zone, well, everyone can win that way because they're making a return and you're providing affordable housing, you're getting a project built, you're adding to your property management team, whatever. So there's all these different ways that you have to look at it now to make it win-win. Uh, seek out so so try to seek out those uh you know i liked your guest alvin hope johnson like that was on a couple like i'm fascinated i've got to learn how he's doing this because that might be that might be a solution for me to implement around here you know the way he's doing it Kent, when i told uh nate i called nate after we had that talk i think it was the next day or or whatever because my head was still spinning and i i listened and re-listened to that podcast and i said Hey, Nate, have you ever heard of this? No, no. And it, not that he blew it off, but we were talking about something else, and I'm so ADD that, that it just popped in my head. And then, he, well, what do you, how does that work? I'm like, well, I don't know. I've only listened to it twice, but X, Y, and Z. And I could hear the wheels turning on his side. I'm like, this may be something that can help you out massively, as well as, as, well as Jared and I, too. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. And I think it just shows like how – with such a massive problem, you have to get creative with it. And that's exactly what yes. you're doing, Nate. You're not just looking for, you're looking for win-win-win solutions where everybody wins, developer, investors, all in attendance, right? Getting a good quality home. Like this is how you guys have to get creative. It's not just about the bottom line. It's also about how much you guys can keep. So when you guys can find these tax advantage strategies using tax exempt bonds or low-income housing tax credits, like all those tools are available to you. But guess what? The people that are able to assemble all these tools together and create the best strategy that creates the win-win-win, you guys are going to make a lot of money. And you guys are going to be help a ton of people in the process. So for the people that are listening to this today, like this is something you guys should be getting excited about. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but 
this is all worth it if you're interested in affordable housing. And this is truly, truly how you make generational impact, like what Nate and his family has done for thousands and thousands of families. So, Nate, I know we're getting right to the end, but what's next for you and your company? Like, what are you looking for? And where can people bring value to you and get in touch with you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, what's, what's great is I, I think after you get on the hockey stick and you've been at this for a long time, then you can, you can sort of pick and choose because, uh, you know, the grind, man, you're always trying to hit a, a grand slam. And, you know, I've been doing this long enough now that I, I don't need to do those and I can do projects that, that are passionate and, you know, just like my relationship with Dane, I'm looking, you know, to, to partner with other folks that might have a, a project that might be a little bit too big for them. They might not know, might need some help on the strategy. Maybe they need a, uh, a person that, that has a, a nice balance sheet to guarantee a loan, or they're just not sure how to go about it. So, um, you know, it's really those partnerships that I'm looking for to, uh, I, I, I'm currently like, learning how to develop and build new, like that's a passion of mine. So doing more development and looking to, uh, to do more of that stuff, but still like the cash flow multi, you know, cash flowing multifamily deals. Um, so I think it's just those strategic relationships with the right operators and maybe a, a project, they have something, a, a line on a piece of land or something's too big. They're just not sure. You know, I can solve those complex problems. I've done very large financing with agencies, banks, um, you know, so I can do a lot of different things. And so really just looking for strategic relationships. Um, you can go to my website, peak 10 group, that's P E A K one zero group.com or natefisher.net. That's my personal. Um, and so all my contacts and inf information is there. So that's how to sort of get in touch with me. Oh, Nate, I like, we're just so happy that you came onto this podcast to share your stories, man. Like these are all real mistakes and problems that, you know, just you sharing about how you guys short out your process going from 15 evictions to like one, like in a massive, massive ratio difference. Like that is incredible. And people need to really heed that advice and implement into your system. So you guys, you guys can scale properly. And in that grand scheme of things, by scaling properly, you get to help way, way more people by learning from mistakes that, you know, Dan and Nate has already uh, encountered in their investing careers. But Nate, I think we need to get your parents back on this podcast actually and share their stories because I'm sure they're full of stories. And I, and I can't wait. I think it's incredible what your family has done and seriously, thank you and, and your family for all you guys do. And Dane, thank you thank for bringing Nate onto the show. This has been incredible. Like this, this episode has been filled with so, so much value that I'm definitely going to re-listen to this a couple of times too. And hopefully uh, the listeners that listen to this can reach out to you. They can, they can provide you with some deal flow or provide you with some strategic investment opportunities that will continue to, you know, cater to your passion. So I think this has been fun, but Nate, thank you again for coming on to the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. I really, really enjoyed it. And like I said at the beginning, you really made me dig back in and relive some of those great experiences that I had as a child with my family. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it guys. It's been great. Next time we have you on, I'll wear a cowboy hat like your old man used to. Uh, I've, got two, I've got two pit bulls. I'll put them on the chairs next to me and I'll have a cowboy hat on. How's that? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. This has been fun. I love it. All right. Great.